0: we're going to talk about a great example of the pardon this morning from this very short New Testament book. This morning we're going to talk about burying the hatchet. That expression found its way into our vernacular courtesy of Native American tribes. When two Native American tribes had gone to war with one another and they sought to make peace, there would be a formal ceremony. The chiefs and the the braves from those tribes would come together And the two chiefs would bring their their tomahawks, their war hatchets. And one chief would offer his tomahawk to the other. And the other chief would offer his tomahawk. And they they would cross them with the blades facing out. And they'd take a piece of rawhide. And they would bind those two hatchets together. They would dig a hole and bury them. It was a peace treaty. It was a symbol That peace had been made between two warring tribes. That found its way into into our vernacular. When we say bury the hatchet, we mean let bygones be bygones, forgive one another, live at peace with one another, and reconcile a relationship. This morning, we're going to dig in on a final aspect of the pardon. And this final aspect is I want you to understand and hopefully practice What it means not only to forgive, but to reconcile a relationship. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is absolutely essential for reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation without forgiveness. But reconciliation is a step beyond forgiveness. It is to restore a broken relationship. If we're going to talk about reconciliation One of the first things we assume, what is assumed in that is there is a broken relationship. Maybe it is a husband and wife. Maybe it is a child and parent. Maybe it's two friends who have gotten crossways with one another and they've gone their separate ways. Maybe it is business partners. Maybe it's church members. Whatever the relationship, there has been a divide. There's been a fracture in the fellowship. And there needs to be restoration and reconciliation. Forgiveness and and reconciliation. uh, For for forgiveness, it can be one-sided. Now, I may forgive somebody and the relationship might not ever be reconciled or restored. Sometimes, it's not possible. If that person passes away, if they die, then there's no way to reconcile that. Now, I could forgive... Or I could long for them to forgive me, but that relationship can't be reconciled. And maybe there are times when it's not possible from the standpoint of wisdom. For example, if you have suffered, and I I really am not trying to minimize or trivialize this, but if you have suffered some sort of abuse at the hands of another person, I would say to you that forgiveness is essential for the well-being of your soul. However, reconciliation might not be wise. The Apostle Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible. There are sometimes through circumstances or through wisdom that it's not possible to reconcile a relationship. But this may be the most important thing that I say to you this morning. But what I just said, notwithstanding, it is God's desire for all of our broken relationships to be reconciled. God's desire for all our broken relationships is reconciliation. That's what He wants to see happen. He wants forgiveness, reconciliation, and restored fellowship. In Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eighteen, the Bible says, "Now all these things are from God." who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, certainly that ministry of reconciliation is helping people find a relationship with Jesus, to be reconciled with God. But there is also what I would call a horizontal aspect of that, and that is that we want to be reconciled with other people, not living in conflict, not living in broken relationships. This is part of the process of the pardon. Now, where do we where do we find this uh, some guidance for this in this text? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter, a very short letter, to a friend of his, and the friend's name was Philemon. Philemon lived in a city called Colossae. We studied the letter to the Colossian church that city, and Paul had apparently led Philemon to faith in Christ. They were very much uh, friends. They were very much spiritual partners in many ways. And uh, Paul was writing him a letter. And I'm sure he was very excited about getting this letter. But he had no idea the contents of it. In in another, uh, or rather, the other side of this story is, the other character is a man named Onesimus. Now here's who Onesimus was. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had wronged his, his master, Philemon. He had ripped him off. He had broken his contract. When we think of slavery, most Americans picture the American slavery experience uh, that happened in our country. That is not necessarily the case when it comes to slavery in the Roman Empire. First of all, slavery in the Roman Empire was not racial at all people of many different races could wind up being slaves or having slaves. The other thing is that it was much more what we would call an indentured servant. In other words, to pay some debt or to, um, to, to right some wrong, you were placed under uh, slavery for a period of time and you served that period of time, say seven years, and then you would be set free. And so When we see slavery, don't read into it the cruelty and the horrible nature of American slavery at times. But either way, uh, Philemon had, uh, or Onesimus had a contract, he broke the contract, and he ran away and he went to Rome. That would not be unusual. You see, in a big city like Rome, in a place that was widely populated, he could just blend in with a crowd. But God seems to have had another providential plan. Because the Apostle Paul was in Rome and he was imprisoned there. Now we have no idea how this happened, but somehow Onesimus and Paul met. Maybe they knew one another. Maybe from the time that Paul had known Philemon, he also met Onesimus. And Paul leads Onesimus, this runaway servant who's wronged his master, who's broken his contract, who's ripped him off. He leads him to faith in Christ. And he wants Onesimus to do the right thing, and he wants Philemon to do the right thing. So he writes this letter. In the first part of the letter, Paul talks about how much he loves Philemon and how he had poured into his life. And he says, Philemon, I have a favor to ask you. I've got something I want you to do, and I don't want to coerce you. I don't want to command you. I want to appeal to you. And here's what he says the favor was all about. Now, imagine this for just a minute. Philemon is getting a letter from the Apostle Paul. Now understand something. A letter from somebody in the ancient world was a rare thing. I mean, it took time for it to get there. It took effort. It took money to get a letter to somebody. They didn't have a postal service. You couldn't just text them. I mean, uh, they, they couldn't communicate well. And they were, they were hundreds of miles apart. So Philemon gets a letter from his friend, his spiritual mentor, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says, I've got a favor to ask you. And he starts reading this letter at verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. What's he got to do with this? I mean, that scoundrel ran away. He ripped me off. He broke his contract with me. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that by your goodness, so that your goodness rather would not be in effect by compulsion, but would be of your own free will for perhaps he was for this reason, separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now in this passage, there are really three parties. And in any broken relationship, there are at least two. But sometimes there's the third, and I want to talk about that. There's the offending party. There's the person who did something wrong. There's the person who hurt you or harmed you or humiliated you. There's the person who committed the offense, the offending party. Then there's the offended party, the person who was done wrong, the person who was hurt or who was harmed. But there's also in this passage what I call the officiating party, the mediator. The one who's trying to mend the fences and bring people together. And in this case, that's the Apostle Paul. The offending party is Onesimus. He's done something wrong. The offended party is Philemon. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to try to bring you together. I'm going to give you a little nudge to come together. Now most of us in this room have at least had a moment in our life when we've had two friends who were at odds with one another. We've had, we've had people in our life who were, we were close to and, and, and we cared about them and they get crossways with one another. Maybe somebody took a joke a little bit too far and hurt somebody's feelings or maybe it was a lot worse than that. And we've, like, we, we've wanted to bring them together. Now let me help you with something because this is important. In order to successfully mediate two people who need to be reconciled to be the officiating party and to do that successfully, you must have one thing, one thing absolutely with both parties. It's what I call relational capital. In other words, they trust that you have both parties' best interest at heart. You're trying to do the best for both people. If either party perceives that you're actually on one person's side or the other person's side, then you cannot successfully be the officiating party. Paul loved Onesimus, and he loved Philemon. And in order for this to work, They both had to know that Paul had their best interest at heart. And so if you ever get caught in that situation, you have to ask yourself a question. Do I have the relational capital to successfully navigate that? If you don't and you try to step into that situation, here's what happens. What happens is that you'll start taking arrows from both sides. You'll become the focus of both parties' bitterness And it simply won't work. But how do we mend fences? How do we bury the hatchet with people and reconcile relationships? Really, there are two points this morning and two points only. Here's the first one. The offending person must have a repentant heart. If you're going to reconcile a relationship, the person who has broken Uh, the, the commitment, the person who has hurt or harmed the other person has to be genuinely repentant over their behavior, over their actions, over their words. And we see that in the life of Onesimus. Paul tells us about him in these verses. He tells us in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. The word begotten uh, refers, it can refer to birth. And what Paul is saying here is that I have begotten him in my imprisonment. He experienced spiritual birth. He was born again right here. Paul is saying, I led him to faith in Christ. First of all, Onesimus has been redeemed. He's saying to Philemon, he is a changed man. There is something different about Onesimus than where he was before. Second, he's responsible. Not only is he redeemed, but he's responsible. Look at verse 11. Formerly, he was formerly useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, what he had done previously was both illegal, he had broken Roman law, and it was at least unethical. He had ripped off Philemon, and he knew what he was doing. But now, Paul says, he's responsible. He's willing to take responsibility for his actions. On the part of the offending party, that that repentant heart is evidenced by both a change of heart and a change of action. If you want to know if you've truly repented, not only has your heart changed and your feelings changed, but have your actions changed? That's an evidence of repentance, of God doing a work of grace of repentance in your life. But not only is he redeemed and responsible, but now he's returning. Verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. Onesimus is going back to make things right. If you have hurt somebody and you know it, the best thing you can do is be honest with God about it first and then go be honest with the other person. And demonstrate to them by seeking their forgiveness that you are truly repentant for what you've done. I'm not sure that in our culture today, if uh, a person had committed some sort of offense, they'd get the same advice that the Apostle Paul gave. Paul says to Onesimus, Onesimus, you're never going to go forward in the Christian life unless you go back and make things right with Philemon. See, in our world, what we'd say is, oh no, just, just move on. Just discard that relationship and move on. We treat people like plastic. This bottle has value to me for one reason. It has water in it. That's the only reason. And uh, I need a drink, so it has great value to me. And I'm going to drink this bottle of water this morning. But this is my bottle of water from the earlier service. And it has no value to me whatsoever. And it is only worthy to be crushed and disposed of. That's what we do with plastic. And far too many of us treat our relationships not like they are people created in the image of God. But like they're plastic. Only to be be maintained when they are useful to us. And to be quickly discarded when we no longer have a use for them. Paul says to Onesimus, I'm going to send you back because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes the way forward in the Christian life is to go back. Now some of you are going, Bob, that don't make any sense at all. Well, sometimes the Bible says things that seem a little upside down. The Bible says the way to be exalted is to humble yourself. And if you try to exalt yourself, God will humble you. The Bible says that the first will be last and the last will be first. So why should it shock us that the Bible would teach us that sometimes to go forward in your life, you need to go back and make something right. Some of you have wondered, I used to pray and I felt like my prayer life was powerful. Now I'm just saying words. I used to read my Bible, and boy, it was like the words leaped off the page, and I learned things about God, and God spoke to me through the Bible, and, and I just call words now, and, sometimes, and I used to come to worship, and man, worship would stir my soul, and we'd sing something like I speak Jesus, and, and my soul would just be on fire, and now it's just get through the music, get through the sermon, let's go home. If you're wondering why maybe you can't go forward in your Christian life, maybe it's because you need to go back and make something right. You need to go back and repent and apologize and seek someone's forgiveness for what has happened. Now, the question for a lot of us is, why don't we do that? I mean, I hadn't said anything that most of you didn't already know. Why don't we do it? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is Pride. We are very prideful people. To admit that we were wrong, to humble ourselves, is something that we are desperately uncomfortable with, and we won't. We won't do it. Immaturity is another reason that we don't seek forgiveness sometimes. And I don't mean chronological age. I'm talking about spiritual immaturity. People who've been saved for 40 years and never grown. Our spiritual immaturity keeps us from humbling ourselves and seeking forgiveness. And then passing the buck, we love, we love having an excuse for our behavior. Bob, if you only knew how I had been hurt, if you only knew what's happened to me, if you only knew all the horrible ways that I've been treated, you would understand my behavior. We are much better at making excuses than we are at making peace. We truly are. Calvin and Shantae were high school sweethearts. They couldn't wait to get married. And right after high school graduation in 1997, that's exactly what they did. Two 18-year-olds setting out in the world together. He had big dreams of a musical career, and he started to pursue that. And because his uncle was a recording artist... He actually had some some inroads to producers and and people who would hear his music, and they liked it. He got a small-time recording contract, and as his songs got played on the radio, it got bigger and bigger, and he became a big star. But Calvin's stardom and all that goes with being a big-time entertainer meant a lot of temptation. And even though he loved Shantae and she loved him, he broke his marriage vows, more than once. Finally, in 2004, after seven years of marriage, he filed for divorce. It shocked Shante. She didn't see it coming. He cited irreconcilable differences, but later he would honestly say it was the guilt over the way I'd broken my marriage vows. We didn't have any irreconcilable difference. But after a while, he began to realize, and especially with his uncle, who had mentored him, that he needed to go back and try to make things right with Shante. And so he did. He went back. Before the divorce was final, he told her the truth. And he asked her to forgive him. And she did. They reconciled. They even renewed their marriage vows in 2008. They are perhaps one of the most unlikely Longest married couples in their part of the music business. Divorce is rampant. You see, Calvin's name you don't know, maybe. But you know his stage name, Snoop Dogg. Now, I am not in any way endorsing Snoop Dogg's lyrics. I've read some of them. Okay? And his statements about spiritual things are pretty convoluted and confused, okay? But I want you to hear me. If with his understanding of spiritual things, which is much less than some of yours, and with the fact that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, the power of God to forgive, how can you possibly say, I won't seek forgiveness. How can you possibly say, I can't forgive that? I think we could learn a little bit from Snoop Dogg. The offending party has to have a repentant heart. You go and you're honest and you say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. But in order for there to be reconciliation... That's the part of seeking forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be extended. And so the offended party has to have a receptive heart. Paul also places a burden in this passage on Philemon. All of the burden is not on Onesimus. Paul says, Philemon, you have a responsibility here. And his responsibility is in verse 17. If then you regard me as a partner accept him as you would me. Paul said, I want you to take Onesimus back just like you would receive me with no thought of retaliation or revenge and not even a hint of resentment. He's saying, Philemon, I want you to extend full forgiveness to Onesimus for what he's done. And Paul knows that he's been a spiritual mentor to Philemon, probably led him to faith in Christ. That's what the text seems to indicate if you read the whole letter. He says, I want you to do this, not because I, the Apostle Paul, asked you to do it or told you to do it. I want you to do this voluntarily. Look at verse 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but of your own free will. Reconciliation cannot be forced, it cannot be manipulated, and it cannot be coerced. Reconciliation has to come from the heart, from a repentant heart and a receptive heart. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. The church that Philemon was no doubt a part of. And maybe he had heard these words, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Sometimes I think the bigger burden in reconciliation is on the offended party because they're going to have to, they're going to have to humble themselves as well. And give up their rights and surrender their demand for reconciliation or restitution, or restitution. They're going to have to say, I'm going to let bygones be bygones. I'll put this behind us. And sometimes that is difficult. But Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, I want you to leave room for perhaps. I love for verse 15. I spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks looking at this verse. For perhaps, Paul says, just consider perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Now Paul says perhaps. Paul didn't say God spoke to me and told me this is why this happened. He just says perhaps. There's a lot of humility in that word from the apostle Paul. For Paul to say, I don't really know why this happened, but I see something that came out of it that was good. Now that does not in any way say that God moved or prompted Onesimus to commit sin. God is never the author of sin, ever, ever. But you know, God can take our mess ups and our missteps and even our rebellion and sin. And out of that wreckage, sometimes he can bring good. For we know that God causes all things to work together. All things. The good, the bad, the ugly. All things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Think of of what happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a young man named Joseph. His father, Jacob, had 12 sons. And among the 12 sons, he was the favorite. He was spoiled and he was petted. The other brothers were sent out to work. In the fields with the flocks. And Joseph was taken care of in comfort. So much so that his father gave him this coat. This coat of many colors. A multi-colored coat. It was a, a dress coat. It wasn't a work coat. Well one day. Dad sent Joseph out to the field. To check on his brothers. And they resented him. For the favoritism that was shown in their home. And so. They took him and they sold him as a slave. And Joseph, this favored son who had lived a life of privilege, is taken to Egypt and sold at a slave market. Reduced from favored son to slave. And then the man who bought him took him into his home and he trusted him. But his wife was attracted to him. She tried to get him to commit sexual sin with her and he refused to do so. And when he refused, she lied about him. And he got thrown in prison. When he was in prison, he encountered Pharaoh's servants. They were having these dreams, and Joseph said, God sometimes gives me interpretations of dreams, and so he tells them what their dreams mean. One of them is restored to his position in Pharaoh's cabinet. One day, Pharaoh has a dream that he can't understand. And he says, when I was in prison... I met a young man who can interpret dreams. Let's go get him. And they go get Joseph. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. That there's seven years of plenty and big harvest of grain coming. And then there are going to be seven years of drought and famine. And people are going to starve. And Joseph said, God's giving you a warning. And so Pharaoh says, I'm putting you in charge of everything, Joseph. One day, his brothers showed up. There's no more grain Where they lived. And the brothers show up. And Joseph recognizes them. Because physically they have not changed. But Joseph has. He's clean shaven in the custom of the Egyptians. He's wearing Egyptian clothing. And he doesn't look anything like Joe looked. When he left at the age of 17. He tests his brothers to see. If while they haven't changed outwardly. Have they changed inwardly. And he finds out that they had. And so, he not only gives them the grain they need and blesses them, but he wraps his arms around them and he hugs them eventually and he tells them who he is. And they are shocked and stunned. He even tells them, Go get my dad, my other little brother. He says, I want you to move all your families to Egypt, where there'll be plenty. And they do that. But then one day, dad dies. Jacob dies and the brothers begin to fear. And what they fear is that Joseph is now going to retaliate. Out of his love for their father, they think Joseph didn't do anything to us while dad was alive. But now that dad is dead, he's going to bring the hammer down on us. And if you read the passage in Genesis 20. I think what you see is almost the broken heart of Joseph over their attitude that they had never really accepted his forgiveness. This is decades after these things had happened in Joseph's life, and he's come to peace with it. He's forgiven them long since. And this is what he said to them in Genesis 50-20. He says, says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph left room for perhaps. That sometimes these things that happen in our life that God does not author, he never authors sin, he still uses. And maybe some of us need to leave room for perhaps in our hurts. Maybe God was using some of that, and while he did not author it, and he did not cause it, he never causes sin, maybe he's using it. Maybe he used it in our life. Maybe he used it in the life of somebody else. Perhaps. And that's what he says, Paul says to Philemon. Now, some of you have listened to four weeks of sermons on forgiveness. And every time you've come or every time you've watched... The same scenario has played out in your head. You've seen that same face. It's that same name. It has come up week after week after week. God's trying to tell you something. He is. And in love, what he's trying to say to you is, it's time. It's time to forgive and let it go. It is time for you to release them and let me deal with it. For some of you, he's saying to you, it's time. You've known what you did hurt that person a long time ago, but out of pride or immaturity or making excuses, you've never admitted that you were wrong. It's time. You've seen that same face and that same name. The Holy Spirit did that. I didn't. And so here's my challenge to you. Today. Not this week. That's week. You'll forget it by Tuesday. Today. Write the letter. Send the text that says I need to talk. Make the phone call if they're miles and miles away. If you are the offending party, and let's just be, okay, let's be honest about this. In most of our relational breakups, in most, of our, in most of those situations, there's a little bit of offending party and a little bit of offended party in all of us, right? But if you are the offending party, own your part. Own what you did and be honest about it and be specific about it. If you lied, tell them you lied. You don't have to rationalize why, just be honest. Yeah, I said that about you and it was a lie. And I broke our friendship because of it. If you cheated, be honest. But then you say these words, not I'm sorry. Sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. If you need to extend forgiveness to somebody, you still should take the initiative. If you were the hurt party, the offended party, the one that got humiliated or harmed, you need to say, what you did hurt me. Now, some of you don't want to say that because you want to build up this strong defense and act like nothing ever hurt you. Just be honest. What you did hurt me. But I... Forgive you. Some of you need to do that. And here's my challenge to you today those of you who are watching, those of you who are in this room, I've done this in every service. Do it today. The longer you put it off, the less likely it is that you're going to do anything. Let me share one more thing and I'm going to be finished. This triangle of the offending party, the offended party, the officiating party, is actually a picture of our salvation. See, I was the offending party. I was the one who did wrong. I sinned against the holy God. I broke his commandments. I have offended a holy God. God himself, my creator, was the offended party when I sinned and rebelled against him. But as the offending party, I have to ask myself a question. Even if I admit that I was wrong, how do I reconcile this relationship? How can this relationship be restored between me and God? Do I do, I do rituals? Do I, do I get baptized? Do, do, do I read my Bible a lot? Do I do good works? What do I do to reconcile this relationship? Enter the officiating party, the mediator. You See, somebody had to have relational capital with both of us. With a sinner like me and a holy God. And the Bible says there's only one. There's only one. Second Timothy one five. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can mediate between a sinful human being like me and a holy God. And only in Jesus can both parties be satisfied. And on the cross, he shed his blood to reconcile a sinner like me to a holy God. And if you've never trusted Jesus, today's your day. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we come before you and acknowledge our own sinfulness, our own selfishness. Lord, I pray this morning for those in this room who need to reach out to somebody, that you'll grant them courage and let your spirit remind them that they need to take a positive step to forgive and reconcile a relationship. Lord, I pray for those who've never trusted Jesus, that today would be the day When they would admit to God that they are a sinner, that they've broken his commandments, and that we are the offending party. But we believe that Jesus died on a cross to be our mediator and to be the one who could reconcile us to a holy God. Lord, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.